This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. to another edition of Business Impact, UCD's School of Business official podcast as we move into March. Isn't it fantastic to see all the colours? I was going to say higher temperatures, but uh, actually we don't really have higher temperatures, but they'll come in time, they'll come in time. And, and we've had a lot of different guests since the start of the year and more at the tail end of last year as well, all very well versed in their subjects. You know, just kind of very, very enthusiastic about their subject area, but sometimes they can be a bit esoteric, might not be your tier taste might not be in the public eye, might not be massively topical every single time. But this time around, we certainly don't have any of those problems. What is the one subject that's going to shape the next election? What is the one subject that shapes virtually every day's media coverage? No, it's not COVID-19, thankfully. Um, What is the subject that everyone talks about nonstop, whether young, old, middle-aged, male, female, whatever it is, that is property and housing. We are addicted in Ireland. We actually have psychological addiction and it's getting worse as prices. Well, they're either going up or at the best plateauing at the moment, depending on what part of the country you're in. And can we get out of this hole, this economic hole? We're in social and political elements to it as well of the housing problem. And my guest today happens to be researching directly in this area, bringing a very interesting perspective. And he is Paul Ryan. He is an Associate Professor of Finance here at the College of Business. He's also the Vice President for Teaching and Learning in the UCD School of Business as well. And he has turned out endless papers, one of them which has been accepted in a very prestigious publication recently, looking at the psychological roots of our addiction to housing and why we have such an addiction to this fantastical object as it is sometimes described. Some people even say we're fetishizing this particular asset if that's what you think it is. He's also very interesting because he fuses psychoanalysis with finance, bringing the two of them together in a very interesting synthesis of research. And he's, as I said, produced a number of papers in this field. So we are joined by him today, and that's Paul Ryan. Paul, you're very welcome to the Business Impact Podcast. Thank you very much, Emma, and thank you for that build-up. I hope I can uh, live up to the expectations. No pressure whatsoever. No pressure whatsoever. I live with pressure. Go ahead. As I said on that introduction, it's the one subject we talk about endlessly, whether the prices are going up or they're going down or they're somewhere in the middle, whether we're in a bubble or in a contraction, it doesn't seem to matter. We seem to talk in this country in particular about property. So it's not just because of the current rental pressures, which are probably the number one election issue, whenever that election is called. But even before that, going back into the 90s and the Celtic Tiger period as well, we were all talking about housing, buying property supplements, doing up our houses. We, we do have kind of what what is my castle kind of approach to this whole issue. But let's just rewind a bit. How did you get into researching on property? What is it about this area that particularly excites you? Because finance is such a wide area. You could be off researching stocks and shares and commodities and all sorts of other assets. But what is it about property and housing that has kind of attracted you in over over a good few years now? I always had a, an interest in property. And as you said there, Emmett, it's a, it's a talking point. No matter who you're talking to in Ireland, they're always talking about their house at their holiday home 
or going abroad as we were in the Celtic Tiger and maybe buying houses abroad uh, and so on. It was, and we've all watched these uh, housing programmes with Kevin MacLeod and, and so on. And, and, and the, the British have a, have a fetish with it uh, as well then in terms of, of, of property too. And I, I was always struck by the, the emotional nature of, of property, which may seem stra- strange given that I come from a finance background where we, we would be indoctrinated, I suppose, from the start in terms of homo economicus, in other words, rational economic man, where you're looking at the intersection of supply and demand and that determines price and so on. But I think there's a lot more to, to the picture in, in terms of, of property and that price might be a barometer, but it's also this uh, behavioural or an emotional side associated with property as well. And that's what really got me into into researching in the in the whole uh, property area uh, per, per se, particularly residential property, if that if that addresses your your issue. Yeah, I suppose we're we're less interested in the commercial side, although obviously it's important at an economic level across the the economy, but. In terms of these residential prices, let's just get a bit of a, a, a temperature take from you at the moment and where we're at. Obviously, the Dublin market is separate from the uh, a non-Dublin market and there's different trends at play. But generally, the prices are, are still very high. For a lot of people, they will use the word unaffordable will be the word used. The private rented sector is a difficult area. There's currently a ban on evictions and there's a lot of stories coming out of this whole generation rent phenomenon. Uh, this isn't just an Irish problem, of course, but we, we'll deal with that in a second. So where, where do you think we're at at the moment? What, what, what's your take? Are, are, we, are we making any progress? We're hearing about 25,000 houses are being built in or about per year. We're told we need a lot more. I mean, what, what's your own assessment of, of what the current position is? If we look at house prices in Ireland versus abroad, if we look at Irish prices since the start of 2013 have gone up in excess of 180%. Now, you can say every, they've gone up everywhere. But if you go look at the OECD average, it's slightly under 140%. So we're out of kilter there. It was a recent report by the European Commission looking at, at, at rental prices. And again, looking they were looking there between 2010 and 2022, where in Ireland, rental prices have gone up 82% roughly over that particular period, where if you looked at the EU average, it was somewhere around 20%. So a big, they've gone up both places, but appreciably more here. At the same time, you've got other ones that are interesting. We've got 170,000 vacant properties uh, in, in the state. We have where a survey done of younger people, I think a month or two ago, where seven out of 10 were considering moving abroad. There was a nice one on Virgin Media there the other night, just watching it, where you had someone that was actually working and they were virtually in tears because they hadn't got a house to live in. In fact, they were actually short-term homeless. Now, if you scroll forward from when they taped that to where they are now, they're now in London, but with a job and with a, with a house. So it just shows you some of the... The things there, and again about um, the argument about uh, capacity. I think tr- roughly around twenty eight thousand houses, if, if memory serves, were built in two thousand and twenty two. And depending on who you're talking to in terms of forecasting and population and growth and so on, it's the real requirement in terms of steady state is about forty to sixty, uh, depending on who you're talking to in it. If you look at it as well, just in terms of land use, because oh, we don't have enough supply. Ireland is the most, other than Lithuania, I think, is the least densely populated country in the entire uh, EU. And about 2% is devoted to 
to to to property uh, and so on in 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 that kind of way. The median house price is about three hundred k, which is well detached from the median salary. One in eight people in Ireland uh, is a property millionaire. Those who are lucky enough to to have it, and it's probably the biggest single political uh, issue uh, at at present, notwithstanding education and of course and indeed the uh, the health service. Now, Paul, in terms of so, I think. The great thing about this debate is that at least the dysfunctionality that you mentioned in those numbers, it's pretty much accepted there. So I don't know anyone who's sort of saying, no, that the property market's in good order and it's balanced and, and it's it's not worth talking about. So I think we're all kind of agreed on diagnosing the problem. But where the difference is, is potential solutions or, or how can we remove some of that dysfunctionality? And obviously the rational um, economist among us will say, look, it's just about boosting supply and that supply will eventually either meet demand or at least come a lot closer to meeting demand. But in your research, you're, you're, you're partially accepting that, but you're saying there's a lot of bigger factors, wider factors at play, and some of them are psychological or subconscious in nature. Can you just walk us through the, walk us through almost like if you put Ireland on the, the, the psychologist's couch here, what problems have we got with property? Can you just talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, and again, I, I when I branched into it again, um, from kind of rational man, uh, in a way, from observation during the Celtic Tiger, both building up to 2007, post-2007, and, and, and so on. And again, trying to understand ultimately what happened here is, is a way. So one looks at history in terms of predicting kind of forward in, in that way. And, and property really started to inflate here around 1995. It took off a lot, a lot more, accelerated around 2003, peaked in 2007. Now, to put that in context, that was about 500% increase between, 2000, between 1995 and 2007. It collapsed then 50%. And we're all, we won't go through all that. We had the IMF and so on, the 64 billion bailout that came in from the so-called uh, Troika there. Levelled off in 2012 and then went up again. And, and when you look at this, we had a number of reports. We had Watson and Regling, we had Honahan, we had the Commission of Inquiry into Bank. And really what I thought was missing about it, well, one, it concentrated on the banking crisis without overly emphasising property, even though our property was implicit. And uh, um, in, 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 the, in, that, in that kind of a sense. But it didn't really get to the why. And things that occurred to me, and I, and I moved into psychoanalysis from working with a colleague, and it might sound esoteric, but um, I think when anyone is dealing with a complex problem, it's always good to look at it through multiple lenses. You can look at an economics perspective, you could look at it from, and indeed sociologists would have said there's a materialism associated with the Celtic Tiger, and that led to a property kind of fetish. But one thing that I noticed was that one could apply a psychoanalytic lens to to property. And this sounds a little bit um, strange in in a way, but this is a paper that was just accepted last week in the International Journal of Applied Psychoanalytic Studies. And they were quite enthusiastic, which was great to get from a reviewer about, about it, that it was great to apply a psychoanalytic framework to a particular economic phenomenon. And I'd noticed things, little vignettes might, might, might help here. That Vincent O'Toole had written an article when Quinlan had bought the Savoy Hotel in, in London, and he described it in the Irish Times. I think we should just describe. Yeah, just Derek Quinlan is a, a former Revenue Commissioner uh, and, and property developer. Just for those who who are listening who might not know who he is, yeah, he's he was a big player in the 
the Celtic Tiger uh, property surge. He bought the Savoy Hotel in London, which was the pinnacle of British power, if you want to look at it in, in some kind of a, a psychological way. And he ran the tricolour up it. And uh, O'Toole described it as basically running it up that was like was like basically the Russians capturing the Reichstag. Another interesting one, if you people remember as well, who are old enough back to that, was the islands of Dubai, which were a series of uh, basically sandbanks off the off the Gulf Coast in in Dubai, and Irish bidders outbid the English to buy the land of England. This is kind of you're you're basically reclaiming or getting territory, creating a property kind of empire. I remember when James Riley. The former Minister for Health bought his a property down in uh, Tipperary, I think it was, and he jumped onto the bed in the in the property, ran upstairs, jumped onto the bed, and there was a sleigh bed there, which I think was over here for George the first in two thousand seventeen fourteen and so on. He said, "Moved over, George. Paddy's here." <laughs> That's not an image I want to dwell on, but I I, I get the idea. It's this sort of post colonial wor- outworking, yeah. Yeah, the way psychoanalysis works, and I, I won't go into the detail of reading the paper and really looking at it because it's a podcast and so on, is that. You can only communicate things, the unconscious is communicated through strange juxtapositions, kind of jokes, funny analogies and these kind of things. Because when you're dealing with the unconscious, and basically what, what, I'm, what we're arguing there is that we have this a colonial view of property, that we're, we're basically getting our property back that we lost through colonialism in a way. And there's a number of reasons why it would have happened in now 1995. We, the, the whole Good Friday Agreement was coming up. We had to make peace with the old empire, uh, so, so to speak. We had the materiality to do it with the, with the, with the Celtic uh, tiger in that way. And we had a lot of political scandals and so on, the whole Charles Hawhey thing and, and, and so on. Uh, and we also had the crisis in the Irish Catholic Church. Now, what the heck's that got to do with property, you might say? But in a way, it detached our moral compass. And we didn't, we had what Freud called the absence of father. In other words, a stabilizing influence. And we effectively found refuge in, in, in property. And property for us carries a particular significance in the Irish psyche. And it's got huge constitutional protections by virtue of a couple of articles in the Constitution uh, that that I that I'd argue we need to kind of a, a address in some kind of a way. So I'm not saying psychology or psychoanalysis is all the answers, but I certainly think it has a way of unlocking some of our our the way our fetishes toward property that may help with unleashing supply, which ultimately supply is really what is the is is been holding us back. And some of the policy measures that have been done to date, though well intentioned and may have an impact, I'd argue, probably won't have a great impact unless we we do something different or, or look at alternative perspectives here by way of a, of a conversation going forward. Yeah, and I, I suppose we, we, we like to apportion blame in these social economic problems. We like to say it's, it's that group or it's that interest uh, there. And I suppose there's a lot of different... Um, suspects have been put forward for why we have these blockages or what the hold-ups is. And let's just run through a few of them and then I'd love to get your view on where, where you think the debate um, makes sense. I mean, some people say um, there's too much um, protection for, for private capital, institutional money coming in. That's one group that have been picked out. Another group is people who object, planning objectors of various types. Some people say it's about the building firms who aren't prepared to build and that they're seeking too much of a, a return. They won't sort of do what the government wants them to do, essentially. 
And then other people will say, well, look, this is a global problem. You know, there, there's high um, property prices in virtually every capital city in Europe. So we, we come up with all sorts of different explanations for why we're in the position we, we are in, which is a dysfunctional position. What, what do you think is the problem? I know that you're, you're particularly looking at the idea of planning and objections and nimbyism, if we can call it that crudely. I mean, is that, is that where you'd sort of put most of your focus on? Yeah, yeah, in, in a way. And, and it sounds kind of outlandish, but I think people look at the innovation literature. Innovation never comes from the centre, it comes from the extreme. So in other words, to, to look at something through a different way, and that's really what entrepreneurs do in a sense. And it was interesting there, you mentioned, Emil, about everybody blaming everybody else. And I remember at the time I was in the uh, the um, the Commission of Inquiry, the Banking Inquiry, where you had the central bank, which was headed by John Hurley, but you had the financial regulator who was headed by Patrick Neary. And interestingly, again, just even within there, people were saying, they were saying, well, I, each blaming the other. In that Patrick Neary said, I'm looking at the micro so I'm not looking at the macro. That's really the central bank's problem. And then you have the central bank through John Hurley and others in there saying, well, you know, we're looking at the macro, but not the micro, which is supervision of the banks. And that's your... And it always reminded me of that famous episode of Yes Minister, where you know, the difference between Sir Humphrey and the minister about the difference between the administration of policy and the policy of administration. And, and that, that kind of struck me uh, and that there and I don't mean to be facetious in it, but everybody blaming everybody else is, is true. That, like, there's a, what I'd call there's a lack of collective responsibility. And a part of that has got to do with, again, the privileged position we put in property. I remember one senior politician being addressed, I won't say who, but we, we talked about all the solutions that are happening in terms of housing for all. And we're going to be having the cap moratorium on evictions and so on. And, and again, all these are very kind of short term rather than dealing with the fundamental issue of, of, of supply then in, in, in that kind of sense. But it, it got to the question then someone and then he was that, well, you know, we'll do X. And immediately that senior politician said, well, oh, we can't really do X because that will be a constitutional kind of issue about proper, private property ownership. Now, immediately that raised a red flag to me. In other words, there, there's a certain untouchable nature of, of, of property in the, in the Constitution. And that's why that you allow a, there's someone in the country who has 3,000 objections to planning, doesn't even live in the vicinity of them, but just as what you might call a serial objector. But these are given kind of a, a right of objecting. Now, if, if you're going to have serial objectors like that and people saying it's out of keeping with the scale of development and so on and so forth, but yet you've got people basically they are dispossessed from property, not only it, say they're going to go abroad and, and so on, you're not unlocking that supply. And to go back to what I said earlier, like only 2% of, of land use has been used in Ireland from the point of view of property. We've got the least densely populated. So it's not that we haven't got a, an available space. It's just that we're not using it effectively. And I remember the, an economist said he was on a train down to Port Leash. And as soon as he got within a couple of miles on the train from Dublin, you suddenly, these massive green fields and at the same time, we've got a housing crisis and people are travelling miles and miles in from distant locations, you know. So the whole planning issue is something that's, that's, that's is always tedious, slowed down. There's always objections, different perspectives and so on, but not an overall kind of picture. And, and that's why I'd argue in, in a way 
that we we're, what we really need now is someone of the ilk of a of a TK Whitaker. And that we're back in the sixties, but we've got a different problem here, which is not attracting in international investment, but retaining international investment, building up SMEs and so on. And that involves having places for people to to live. And we need some kind of a, a visionary kind of person that will act as a, a kind of a czar really to drive this thing forward, bringing together these kind of multiple perspectives and including addressing the constitutional sacrosanct nature of, of, of property. Well, there was a constitutional commission a couple of years back, a lot of recommendations for change. But when it came to property, and I followed this one very closely, there was no appetite at all for changing the constitutional provision. So again, this, we've got a sacred cow here which were on with, and it might sound esoteric, but I think it is of the fundamental problem. You know? Yeah, well, I suppose it's, it's also about, um, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it's also about activating uh, other parts of the society and the economy. I mean, I, I, I'm going to take a really small item, right? But, it, but I think it's, it speaks a bit larger. Take the dining cart on the trains, right? Now, bear with me, bear with me, right? So CIE have taken, since COVID, you can't get a cup of tea or coffee on the train, right? They are bringing it back shortly, right? Fair enough. But the point about it is we're, we're saying to people, you need to live out further out. You know, we're, we're, we're told that we're too crowded in the inner city. There's no more, as somebody said, there's no more rat mines, rat guards being built. They're gone. The, the, the land is taken up. The green belt is out. So now just leave that aside because obviously you can work on the density. So we're saying to people, get a train in, use public transport, contribute to climate change efforts, use public transport, don't use your fossil fueling, burning car, etc., but you can't even get a cup of tea on the train that's meant to take you into the city centre from these places you're meant to live in. So it's not just the big things, it's the small things. We're not trying to incentivize people to make what we call the right decisions. We're not putting in place the structures that would enable them to make the right decisions. Do you see that point at all or does that make any sense? Sorry to CIE for picking them out, but I uh, just I think it's more illustrative than anything else. Yeah, you're, you're right. And to, again, to go back to psychology, people can engage in what you might call wishful thinking and wish it into existence without putting the hard work in to, to resolve that. And I appreciate government is a complex issue because you've got a lot of competing interests and the gap between making the decision and it happening could outspan a government in that way. So the whole incentive issue is is obviously a, a kind of a problem uh, kind of here. But you're right, the small things. And, and again, smart cities are about building higher kind of developments. And of course, the subjectant over that, over looking into someone's garden and all the rest of it. But if, if you look from a sustainability perspective, and if you look what's happened kind of post-COVID and so on, the, the inner cities are, are dying a little bit and the pen company have gone. You know, it's about revitalising cities in a way. And, and the Europeans are a lot better at it because they don't have this particular fetish. And I'm using the word fetish here, Richard, just to spread it out in terms of property. <laughs> yeah, there's no other connotations yeah, to this. Yes, in, 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 <laughs> And it'd be great if people didn't have to have a car. Like if in New York, you don't need to have a car. Uh, even though it's a car society in the in the US, and they have a densely populated area that that when I've been in it, it's you know it's a vibrant kind of city with internal market like the Smithfield Market here that closed down. I think it's open to do some kind of is is a disgrace really that that could have gone into that kind of decay. We're terrible at preservation in in that kind of way. Let things go down and just interested to look at. And I know it's going off the point a bit again. It goes back to property. I was watching the a repeat of. Um, 
the Lady Gregory programme that was done on on RTE there about how cool park that was handed into the fight of the state, it, it's gone. But but there's a bigger issue, is there not there, I suppose, Paul, that uh, in the sense of, like, if, if people are going to do a lot of their retailing on Amazon, which they are, and I'm as guilty as the next person, so, you know, I'm, I'm a hypocrite in that sense. I mean, we're going to have to reinvent a lot of these areas because ordinary bricks and mortar retail is not going to be... I mean, maybe it can change its model, but you know it's not going to be as present as it was. And it takes up a large part of the space in the urban centres of Ireland and other parts of Europe. So when we think about property, it's not just residential. It's how are we going to use properties of all sorts of stripes and different types, retail, commercial, factories even. You know, I see a lot of pubs are now being converted for housing purposes. Uh, there were some figures on that last week. So we suppose we should see it in the broadest sense when we say property, shouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess with, with people now working remotely and we saw with Google, they don't know they need the building that they that they bought and built and they're they're trying to sublet it out and so on. And to the extent that these things could be converted into into, you know, usable space from a, a residential point of view. And I think for the Four Seasons was designed in, in, in that kind of way. In other words, when they designed that first, that was designed that if it failed as a hotel, it could be converted into a block of apartments. And I, I agree with you there. And again, it's a different issue. Probably retail people could talk to you better. But I know a lot of uh, places abroad have revitalised the city and having, you know, different thematics, having play parks in, 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 uh, in, in shopping centres that children could play in. And again, if you bring people back living in the city, you have now got a um, a more vibrancy that would attract more in. And, and it would go back in a way, and the city's changed and evolved over time. Like the Mountjoy Square used to be the second square of the British Empire. And look where it ended up. It ended up in Russia's tyranny and, and Trumpet City and so on. And now it's been revitalised kind of again. I guess, I guess things happen in cycle, but we need to rethink about the smart city. And there's a lot of good work being done in the Earth Institute and I'm sure in UCD and various other places about, you know, you're, you're the, you shouldn't have much more than a five minute commute. And, and, and I think if people are brought back into a city, you won't need the darts. You won't need all the the carbon footprints that you're 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 talking about in that kind of way, and it, it comes a self fulfilling prophecy. In other words, a virtuous circle rather than a, rather than the opposite. Now you are, despite everything that you've heard about psychoanalysts, etc., you do remain at your core, I suppose, a finance lecturer. That's your your sort of bread and butter, and you're obviously involved in teaching and learning and, and trying to get students to engage in critical thinking by just looking at alternative perspectives to the the kind of dominant orthodoxies of the day. So that, that's what it's about going to college, isn't it? It's just sort of questioning things and, and getting some fresh perspectives that you might not have got at school level necessarily. So so um, all this stuff you're talking about, do, do you think you could contribute to that side of things, the, 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 the kind of the teaching role and giving youngsters new perspectives that they wouldn't necessarily pick up from the old dusty textbooks that they might have had back in the, the 90s or 80s even? I mean, is that something you can kind of bring this psychoanalysts into, into the lecture hall itself? Yes, yes, indeed. And it, it's something that I'm passionate about from the role that I'm in. And indeed, a lot of faculty within the College of Business are. And if we go back just to one thing that we, we've talk, we haven't talked about, but is out there in the ether, is really artificial intelligence and these um, AI um, packages that can write essays for students and, and so on. Um, now, they're good to a certain extent, but they can't think like a human. They can't look at things like analysis, synthesis, looking at things from different angles and so on and so forth. In other words, this critical thinking thing. 
And in other words, being able to bring multiple lenses to look at a problem. And again, that's the way innovation happens in, in, in firms and so on. So we talk about in, in university parlance, the flipped classroom, where it's not a lecturer talking and, and, commu- and giving knowledge. It's having that kind of widespread, it's a cauldron of education within a classroom where people share beliefs, have guest speakers coming in that may have a different lens. And it could even be bringing into an economics class someone with a psychoanalytic lens. And if you take Robert Schiller, who got the Nobel Prize for Economics a number of years back, he's done a lot of work in psychology. So he's looking at that from a different perspective than Eugene Fama, who also got the Nobel Prize for Economics in the same year, that has a totally different view of the world. So in other words, you can accommodate and reach a a solution by bringing in different perspectives and encourage people to think critically about their lives, how they can contribute to business and how they can contribute to society and the community at large. Yes, and I, I think what you're saying, and that goes back to the property thing, there's there's the rational part of us and there's the irrational part of us and, and how they balance up probably has a lot to say about what's happening in our property market. We just don't know which bit is which or we don't know how to break down which one is more dominant. But you've given us, uh, given us some food for thought on maybe the irrational part is more to the fore than we realise or we want to admit when we look at this problem. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I think you've got a nice mix of, of optimism and realism in there because not all of this is going to be solved tomorrow by me or you or anyone listening in. But hopefully, as the years go on, we'll get a little bit better at tackling the problem. But for now, thank you very much for talking to us. That is the Associate Professor of Finance here at the UCD College of Business, Dr. Paul Ryan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact. Music